Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you because you've given us your word. We thank and praise you because it tells us the truth and because it is relevant to us today. Please help us this evening as we reflect on your word to understand its relevance to us and to grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Have you ever been on a disastrous journey? Uh, I've been on a few. My mate George and I used to go camping. And our pattern would usually go something like this. We'd meet up after work on a Friday evening about 7 o'clock. We'd grab the tent and off we'd go. Uh, We'd stop on the way at a shop for a few supplies and then we'd hit the bush, by which time it was generally the middle of the night. We always forgot matches We never had a torch. We never had a can opener. All these things were part of the the challenge of bush survival. I think the the worst trouble we ever managed to get into was on a trip to Canoe Creek in the Wallamai National Park. It had been raining really heavily and the four-wheel drive track that we needed to go on had been washed away. Uh, There was George. There was George's brother who sadly suffers terribly from schizophrenia. And there was me. We were running late, as usual, late on a Friday night, and we found ourselves driving down this washed-out four-wheel drive track at midnight in Georgia's little two-wheel drive Datsun. The track was shocking. It was pitch black. We were 30 kilometres away from anything. George was hurtling down this this track, and his brother was sitting in the front seat and he was screaming, literally screaming, he was screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die, it's the end! Like this. <clears throat> anyway, to cut a long story short, we ended up with the car dangling halfway off a cliff in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. We tied the car to a tree to stop it falling off the cliff and we camped there for the night. Poor George's brother by this time was sobbing with fear. He's never been camping with us again ever since. Uh, the next morning, George and I left him with the car. We jogged out the 10, kilo- 10, 10 kilometres to the road. We hitchhiked 20 kilometres to the nearest service station. We rang for a tow truck to pull us out, and the bloke was just laughing at us all the way down this track. Uh, and then finally, we went camping. We went uh, down Canoe Creek to the Colo River, and we went liloing. Uh, That was until I got attacked by the biggest spider I have ever seen. It was bigger than my hand and it landed right on my back. And as we were kind of fighting about getting this spider off and panicking, we put a hole in our air mattress and sunk it in the water. I think you get the picture. It was a nightmare trip. But it's nothing compared to the story of the Apostle Paul, is it? Uh, Over these last few chapters in Acts, these last few weeks, we've been seeing Paul face one disaster after another. He's just escaped from death over and over and over again. He nearly got lynched by the crowd in the Jerusalem temple. Uh, Terrorists have been trying to assassinate him. The Jewish chief priest and the best lawyer in town, they've been trying to get, uh, get him sentenced to death. He's appeared before corrupt and violent officials and governors and kings and he's, he's told them about uh, repentance and self-control and the judgment to come. His life has been hanging by a thread, literally. But all along, we've known that Paul will survive. We've known 
Because Jesus promised him he'd survive. Jump back with me to chapter 23 and verse 11. Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Is it? He can't die in Jerusalem. He must testify to Jesus in Rome. Now, I've been trying to illustrate this for you with extraordinary lack of success. Uh, last time we looked at that verse, I said that Paul reminded me of Arthur Dent in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He can't die until he gets to Stavromi Labita, but just total blank looks on your faces. That fell completely flat. Uh, so I suggested the guy on the movie Groundhog Day. Uh, it doesn't matter what he does, he can't die. Next morning he wakes up at 6 o'clock, the alarm clock goes. That was a complete flop as well. Uh, so I've got a new one for you. This one should cover the classical scholars and for just about everybody else, it should cover the Brad Pitt fans. Here we go. Paul is a bit like Achilles. You remember Achilles? Okay, I'm getting at least a couple of nods from those who've read it in the Greek, from the ancient Greek uh, um, uh, uh, legend of Troy, and a few nods from Brad Pitt fans who saw him in the movie. Uh, according to the legend, Achilles' mum dipped him in some stuff that made him immortal. And so Achilles couldn't be killed. Jesus had made a promise to Paul. He said, you're going to Rome to testify about me, and so Paul cannot die until it happens. But this passage that we've looked at tonight, we run into even more disasters, uh, even more challenges to Jesus' promise. Time and time again, Paul should be dead, uh, over and over again. Uh, back in chapter 25, you may remember Paul had to appeal to Caesar. That was to avoid an assassination plot. Well, now in chapter 27, he, he um, gets taken on his way. You'll just notice surreptitiously that, that Luke is, is here with him again. Luke doesn't say that he's there, but he just starts talking about we again. And, uh, and Luke gives us his diary of what happened. So Acts chapter 27 and verse 1. Acts chapter 27 and verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners who were, were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia and we put out to sea. Now, apparently, there was an ancient saying about travelling in this area. Uh, it goes, to travel in September is stupid, to travel in November is suicide. Well, it seems that they've set off perhaps in August, late August or September and the going is very tough. They lose heaps of time, the wind is against them, they get blown all over the place, and they end up in a place called Fair Havens on the island of Crete. Uh, by now we're told heaps of time has gone, and it's after the fast, that is after the Day of Atonement. And so that puts us now well into October. So it's somewhere between stupid and suicide. Um, Paul, who is, uh, Paul, who is a very experienced traveller by now, and so he, he warns them, look guys, you've just got to stay where you are. But they ignore his advice. Verse 9. Verse 9. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, Men, 
I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. It's just sort of around the corner a bit further on the same island of Crete. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But that's when disaster strikes. There's a a terrible, terrible storm. It lasts for, for two weeks. It blows them completely off course, way out off the island of Crete and out into the ocean. And they are so battered about for so long, they, they, they give up all hope of survival. Verse 14. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they'd run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. They've given up hope. It's the end. Except that Paul can't die. An angel appears to Paul and he says, Paul, there's no change in plans. Um, Of course, you're still going to make it to Rome. And uh, by the way, God's going to save all the rest of the people as well. And so Paul encourages them. Verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen, just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Now, Paul says that they have to run aground on some island. Now, that is uh, it's a pretty ridiculous thing to say because they're completely in the middle of the ocean. Um, but that's what happens. Quite miraculously, they, they land on a tiny little speck on the map that we find out is called Malta. And it's amazing if you see it on a map, there's this big ocean and a tiny little speck there, and that's what they run into. It's like they sit on the needle in the haystack or something like that. It's an extraordinary miracle. Uh, Anyway, the the sailors realise that the ship is getting close to land. They drop anchor. Some of them try to escape, as we read, but the centurion stops them. uh, Paul encourages them to eat a meal for strength. Then they chuck out the rest of the food to lighten the boat, and then they try to get the boat to the land. Uh, Pick it up in verse 39. Verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognise the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. 
cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. Saved at last. Well, not quite. It's not quite over yet. The boat gets stuck. And the soldiers decide they're going to kill Paul and all the prisoners uh, to, to stop them escaping. And so now, surely, Paul is dead. Verse 41. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But again, at the very last minute, Paul is rescued. And so, just like he said, the boat is lost, but all the people make it safely to shore. Verse 43. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to the land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. And so we're ready to breathe our sigh of relief. We've been rescued from the ocean. But before you get a chance to breathe, it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. Because they land on the island and Paul, you wouldn't believe it, gets bitten by a poisonous snake. This time, sure to die. Chapter 28 and verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and, as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But again, Paul can't die. He didn't get bitten on the Achilles tendon, it seems. Uh, Jesus has promised that he will get to Rome. And nothing can stop Jesus from keeping his promise. And so verse 5. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. So Paul and the others have three months wintering in Malta. Uh, Paul does some extraordinary, amazing miracles while he's there. And then finally we set off on the last leg of the journey to Rome. Uh, when they get there, uh, Paul is welcomed by the church. Let's finish it off halfway through verse 14. And so we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. It's a great story, isn't it? Um, full of action, excitement and adventure. It's like an Indiana Jones movie or something, except uh, it's all for real. It all actually happened. The question is, though, what are we going to do with this very interesting story? What, uh, what, what, what relevance does it have for us? It, it is a rollicking story, but I don't anticipate that many of us here in Chatswood are going to face the same things that Paul did. 
Uh, we don't have a promise from Jesus that we can't die until we get to Rome. I doubt very much that you will face too many shipwrecks or assassination attempts or poisonous snake bites. Perhaps in Australia there might be a few poisonous snake bites. So, so what do we do with it? I guess the first thing we've got to do is recognise what kind of literature we're dealing with. Luke is not writing a, 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 a book of Christian doctrine for us. He's not writing timeless truths. Luke is telling us the story of what happened. This is narrative, is what you call this literature. And we've got to remember to, to treat the literature with integrity. We need to treat it as a story or, or as, as history. This tells us what happened to Paul. It's not necessarily telling us what will happen today. You can't take this story and say, therefore, all missionaries who go to Rome will survive snake bites or something. Uh, you, can't, you can't take this story and say, therefore, all missionaries should uh, avoid sea journeys or something like that. You, you can't do what one church I'm told in America does and say, well, Christians can therefore play with poisonous snakes in their church services and they'll be fine. I doubt there'd be too many people joining that church, I have to say. But it's the wrong way of reading it because what Luke is doing, he's telling us what happened. He's not telling us what ought to happen or what will happen. But having said that, Luke has gone to great lengths to tell us this story in, in enormous detail. He, he spent nearly eight chapters telling us of the adventures of Paul from coming down to Jerusalem and then all the way from Jerusalem through to Rome. There aren't that many things in the New Testament that take up eight chapters. And, and Luke's doing it for a reason. He's not just trying to regale us with good stories from his diary like I tried to do at the beginning of, uh, of the talk tonight to, to, get, to get a laugh from us or something like that. He's written his books, that is, uh, he's written the Gospel of Luke and he's written the Book of Acts for a reason and, and he doesn't keep us in suspense about the reason. He actually tells us the reason right at the beginning of his first book and I've put it there on your outline to just remind you. From Luke chapter 1, can you see it there on your outline? From Luke chapter 1. He says this, he says, It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, lover of God, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. You see, that's what, that's what Luke's doing. He's telling us the story of Jesus and the early church. He's telling us in an orderly way, in chronological order. He's not doing what the letters do, which is take bits of the story and apply it to situations in the church. He's just telling us the story from beginning to end in an orderly way. And, and you can see the reason why he's doing that. It's so that we can know the certainty of the things we've been taught. That's what he's doing. He's not trying to give us a thrill by telling us great stories. He's helping us to be certain of the things that we've been taught. So here's the question for you. How do these stories do that? How do these chapters about Paul's adventures achieve Luke's purpose? How do they help us to know the certainty of what we've been taught? Well, let me suggest two ways. First, these chapters give us confidence that we can trust the Apostle Paul. Uh, they help us to be certain about Paul. Now, the thing about Paul is this. 
one of the main sources of Christian teaching, both in Luke's day and today, is these letters written by the Apostle Paul. It's a very significant part of our New Testament taken up by, by the Apostle Paul. And that was already the case when Luke was writing. By the time Luke was writing, Paul had already written um, Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. He'd written Romans. He'd written 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Probably at the same time that Luke is sitting down and writing Acts, Paul is also writing. They're, they're together and Paul is also writing. He's writing his letter to the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Colossians. Paul was then, and he is now, one of the most important sources of Christian teaching. And, and what these stories that Luke has given us about Paul do, for me at least, is this. They, they help me to be more certain about Paul. They help me to know the certainty of what Paul teaches. Because I can see from these chapters that Paul is a true eyewitness of the risen Jesus. I mean, he's said that twice, hasn't he, over these last couple of weeks? And he's been willing to, to put his, his life on the line for that testimony. He saw the risen Jesus. And from these chapters, we can see that Paul has a special connection to Jesus. Jesus talks to him. Uh, Jesus sends angels to him. Jesus makes direct promises to him. From these chapters, we can see that God accredited Paul as his authorised witness. He enabled Paul to do stuff that you and I cannot do. You and I can't heal people on the island of Malta. You and I would not be rescued in the same way that Paul was rescued. You and I get bitten by a snake, we're not going to shake it off. Paul is authorised by God as his messenger through all these miracles. From these chapters I can see that Paul is a man of the highest character and integrity and honesty. When you see him in those courtroom situations with these corrupt officials with all this intrigue going on and he just tells it like it is. Total integrity and honesty. And from these chapters we can see that Paul is passionately concerned that we be saved. Whether we be Jew or Gentile. Paul put his life on the line time and time and time again so that the message about Jesus could go out to us. That's all pretty comforting to know, don't you think? Let me give you a little bit of a clue of what's going to happen next year, God willing. Next year we're going to look at two of Paul's letters. We're going to look at his first letter to Timothy and his second letter to the Corinthians. And I hope from, from what Luke has shown us in Acts that we will come to these letters feeling a bit like we know Paul, feeling a great sense of love for Paul. I hope that uh, next year as we come to these letters we'll have great confidence in Paul's authority as a spokesman for Jesus. I hope that we'll be comfortable that Paul, Paul wants the very best for us in what he teaches. Uh, these chapters be, help us to be certain about Paul. Secondly, uh, secondly, Luke has helped us to know the certainty of Jesus' promises. They help us to be certain about Jesus' promises because Jesus has made promises to you and to me, hasn't he? Uh, he hasn't promised that we will make it to Rome without dying or something like that, but he has made extraordinary and wonderful promises to us. Jesus promises that he is with us. Jesus promises that he is for us. Jesus promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and will forgive us. 
Jesus promises that there is room for us in the Father's house and that he has prepared an eternal place for us. Extraordinary, wonderful promises. But the thing about those promises is they're pretty hard to see here and now. I can't see now that Jesus is with me. I can't see now that my sin is forgiven. I can't see now that I have a place with the Father in heaven. I can't see the results of these promises here and now, and so I'm sure it's the same for you as it is for me. It is easy to doubt, isn't it? It's easy to to wonder if it's all true. It's easy to wonder if Jesus will, in fact, keep his promises. But what Luke has done over these eight chapters, he's taken a promise from Jesus that you can see the results of. Either Paul makes it to Rome to testify about Jesus or he doesn't make it to Rome to testify about Jesus. It is, it is immediately historically verifiable. You know what I mean? And, and, and the reason I think why we get eight chapters of it is because what Luke is doing is he is showing how this promise was put to the test in every conceivable way you could think of. Uh, The Jews, they want Paul dead. And the high priest is on the job. And the assassins are on the job. And and the best lawyers in in town are on the job. The Romans, they're corrupt and violent. And soon they're going to want Paul dead because of the way he keeps talking to them about Jesus. You've got Jews against him, you've got the whole Roman Empire against him, you've got the ocean wanting him dead, blowing him all over the, the, the sea. You've got snakes wanting him dead, biting him. Everything you can possibly think of is conspiring together to stop Jesus keeping this promise. But he keeps it. And Paul makes it to Rome. I've got to say, that, that helps me. It helps me to know the certainty of the promises that I've got from Jesus. I can't see the evidence of my forgiveness. I can't see the evidence of my eternal life. I can't see the evidence of Jesus' presence with me. But I do have Jesus' promises in his word. And I look at how he keeps this promise here in Acts, and it does help me be certain. It helps me be certain that he'll keep his promises to me. Because I see his power here. I see that nothing can stop him. I can see, not that he's going to make everything easy for me, I mean, it's hardly easy for Paul, but I can see that he will keep his promises. Nothing, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. These stories from Luke's diary help us to be certain. Well, it has been a rollicking story. We've just got one tiny little bit to do in a few weeks. We'll finish this off uh, after all our... um, our mission next week and then our Christmas stuff. We'll come back to this in the last week in December and finish it off. I hope you've enjoyed the story. But, but more than that, I hope it has actually made you more certain. I hope you feel now like you know Paul a bit and, and you really trust him. And I hope that you know even more certainly that Jesus will keep his promises to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for your wonderful promises to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you're trustworthy and these promises will be kept. We thank you that you do forgive us, you do cleanse us, you do give us eternal life. Help us to be certain and to rejoice in this certainty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.